This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. These aren't... These aren't... These aren't storm clouds. This is the... That they burn off the... They burn off in East Palestine. This is not storm clouds. Look at it. This is over Darlington. The scene in and around East Palestine, Ohio is genuinely apocalyptic looking and seeing these photographs is chilling because you know that this is an ecological disaster on a massive scale still to be determined. But what makes matters worse is that it feels like residents are being gaslit and they're being told that everything is copacetic, they can return home when it's obvious that that's not actually true. So this story is genuinely disturbing and I hope that more people pay attention to it because what we're witnessing here can happen anywhere. And it's happening in the United States and these residents here, they're essentially powerless in this situation. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, residents of East Palestine, Ohio, are voicing alarm and mistrust of officials after a 150-car train carrying hazardous materials, including vinyl chloride, crashed in their small town, prompting emergency evacuations and a controlled release of chemicals into the air to prevent a catastrophic explosion. Norfolk Southern, the company that owns the derailed train, has insisted that public health is not at risk, a sentiment echoed by local authorities. Just five days after the fiery crash, Top officials, including Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine, effectively gave the all clear, telling residents they can safely return home. Many, lacking viable alternatives due to their limited resources and incomes, have done just that, despite lingering fears of the impacts that the train crash and subsequent unleashing of toxic gases into the atmosphere may have had on their town. Some have reported strong chemical odors and unsettling sights, such as a stream blackened by substances released from the train and dead fish. Now, to be clear, residents were told to evacuate if they lived within a one to two mile radius of the controlled explosion. And they were very quickly told to return home. But those residents are still saying they don't feel safe there, but they're being instructed to open the windows, wipe off surfaces. And it's not just residents within that area. Residents all around East Palestine and even outside of East Palestine are saying this doesn't feel right. We smell an odor. One family told the Washington Post that it smells like a combination of nail polish remover and burning tires, and it's causing headaches and nausea. And that's for good reason. It's because the burning of vinyl chloride is potentially very dangerous. Now, that's the chemical in question that a lot of people are worried about. Now, vinyl chloride is made, uh, is used to make PVC pipes and whatnot. And Long-term exposure to this can lead to a lot of health issues. It's linked to cancers such as liver cancer, but it's really toxic in particular when it's burned. As AP explains, officials warned the controlled burn would send phosgene and hydrogen chloride into the air. Phosgene is a highly toxic colorless gas with a strong odor that can cause vomiting and breathing trouble and was used as a weapon in World War One. So this was used as a weapon in World War One and residents in East Palestine are being told it's perfectly fine if they breathe this in. We don't know how long these chemicals are going to linger, how long this will actually affect them. There's a fundamental lack of transparency here that's making the situation a lot more ominous. And you don't have to be a genius to know that the situation just doesn't feel right. Jordan Sheridan of Status Quo spoke to one resident who explained that his pets are experiencing a lot of health issues. One of them even died as a result of the chemicals. You've basically been taking your animals to the vet back and forth, back and forth. Uh, I want to show an image you posted uh, of one uh, that looks pretty ill. Uh, that's one of your foxes there. Swollen face, yeah. runny eyes, coughing. 
another one, unfortunately, uh, passed away. Um, this is uh, Kieran was yeah. the fox's name. Um, yeah, did the Kieran. vet? Did the vet? Sorry, by the way, that's terrible. Um, did the vet talk about what they think? Was it the smoke they they were inhaling? Uh, what do they think is making them sick? Uh, so far at the vet, they've tested the blood levels and there's raised liver enzymes and the chloride levels in the blood are on the high end of normal and the lungs are inflamed. All of that is like in line with vinyl chloride exposure. There's um, the eye irritation and there is neurological issues going on, which is also things that can happen from the chloride, uh, vinyl chloride exposure. Um, the one that passed away, they have been talking to um, universities to make sure that they do the necropsy correctly and don't lose any of the like tissues and don't mess up any of the samples. And they make everything go how it needs to go to have the information preserved um, so that in, anything that is there can be used. Um, the one, I have one fox that has come home so far from the vet and she still isn't 100%, but she's doing a lot better. And um, hopefully the other ones are all going to make it. But one like has a lot of neurological problems. And she, so far, is seeming like she's not going to be herself again from everything. And I have others that also have neurological issues that just, they're not themselves at all from it. And I'm really worried. I'm sorry, but that is not normal. That is not a normal phenomenon. Now... With each passing day, it seems more and more terrible to instruct citizens to return to their homes, considering that we're still learning about what's going on there and we're still discovering more chemicals. That's the worst part. So a local ABC News affiliate reported that additional toxins have actually been identified, including ethylexyl acrylate, which is a carcinogen that causes irritation and burning when it comes into contact with the skin. And it can also cause shortness of breath when it's inhaled and also isobutylene, which can cause dizziness when inhaled. And if that wasn't already bad enough, a local Fox News affiliate reports that East Palestine residents are being warned that water may actually be at risk as well and this warning came again after they were told that it was safe to return home so now the water may be at risk they're discovering more chemicals there are reports that animals have been affected and yet nope it's okay you can return home this is not right this is not okay and the residents aren't stupid they know that it's not safe to return home but the problem is that some of them don't have a choice so one family spoke to the pittsburgh post gazette and they said that you can actually smell the chemicals through the water. Quote, it was gagging my 16-year-old niece. It was so strong, she said. Another said they want to leave, but they don't have a choice. Quote, I don't want to take my kids back to that, she said. None of us have the money to completely start over somewhere. We're not going to have a choice but to take our children back to that place, and it's not fair. So they're essentially powerless in this situation. They're powerless. They're being told that it's safe for them to return home. Just wipe down surfaces, open windows, and you'll be fine. And they know that that's not right. They can feel the way that it affects them. They can smell the chemicals, but they don't have a choice. They don't have money. Now, what should be happening is the company should foot the bill for their hotels, get them out of that area for the foreseeable future. But um, here's how they're taking responsibility. You want to know how? With a $25,000 donation to the Red Cross. Seriously, that's what Norfolk Southern decided to donate. That's their way of taking responsibility for their action here. It's almost an insult, right? The audacity of some of these corporations. Oh, you know, we're sorry that we poisoned your entire town, but here's a $25,000 donation to the Red Cross. Does that make you feel any better? It, it, what do you even say to that? What do you even say to that? Now, there is a reason why this happened, and it's because rail companies are choosing to put profits over people and the communities that they're supposed to be serving. Now, the Rail Workers Union actually released a press statement saying exactly why this took place, blaming Wall Street's motives here. The root causes of this wreck are the same ones that have been singled out repeatedly associated with the hedge fund initiated operating model known as precision scheduled railroading. But risky practices such as ever longer and heavier trains even precede PSR. The train that wrecked is a case in point, 9,300 feet long, 18,000 tons, 
Other hallmarks of modern-day railroading include deep cuts both to maintenance and operating employees, poor customer service, deferred maintenance to rolling stock and infrastructure, long working hours and chronic fatigue, limited on-the-job training and high employee turnover. They continue, at this time, the immediate cause of the wreck appears to have been a 19th-century-style mechanical failure of the axle on one of the cars, an overheated bearing, leading to derailment and then jackknifing tumbling cars. There is no way in the 21st century, save from a combination of incompetence and disregard for public safety, that such a defect should still be threatening our communities. But yet, here we are. And at the time that I record this video, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has still not even called for the return of an Obama-era regulation that mandated the use of better braking technology, or at least expanded the use of better braking technology. And there's a write-up about this in The Lever, which is really informative. I'll encourage you to read that. We have this really sketchy situation taking place where residents can smell the effect that these chemicals have had on their communities. They can see that things aren't right. They're being told to return home. And yet, there's not a lot of attention on this. And as if the situation wasn't already stink, News Nation reporter Evan Lambert was arrested during a press conference for Republican Governor Mike DeWine. And they claimed that he was arrested for criminal trespassing and disorderly conduct. Why? Well, because reporters were instructed to not speak during the press conference, but he was being too loud. Therefore, he was arrested. And of course, police were incredibly aggressive and brutal. And that makes the situation even more suspicious. Now, to be fair, Governor Mike DeWine says that this arrest was not uh, necessary. It was bad. He doesn't like that it happened. But still, when you have this ominous situation and you feel as if local authorities aren't giving you the full details they're not giving you all of the information that's needed to determine for yourself whether or not the situation is safe and when you have this company not taking responsibility it kind of feels like this is all this broad cover-up effort and you're being gaslit in the process and the arrest you know the silver lining at least was that it brought more attention to this particular story but either way this is not normal and it doesn't seem safe for the residents to be there we don't know how long it's going to be unsafe but certainly currently it doesn't seem safe but i mean what choice do these residents have they don't have the money so you can go to a different area sleep on the streets or you can stay home where your things are and just uh cross your fingers and hope that the local authorities are being honest and they're not telling you to return home when it's not actually safe but if we learned anything, especially from the Flint water crisis, it's that you can't necessarily trust what these authorities tell you. And sometimes don't just be skeptical for the sake of being skeptical. Trust your eyes, right? They saw how the water was orange and contaminated with lead and flint. And residents in East Palestine are, are seeing that this isn't over. They could smell the chemicals. The water is at risk now. And it was a bad idea for them to return home. So there needs to be accountability. And this is going to be a scandal that lasts for years because I don't even think we're going to uncover how disastrous this really was until years down the line. And just knowing currently that people are being poisoned and they're forced to stay there is genuinely sickening in the richest country on the planet. But I can't say I'm surprised because in this country, profits are prioritized over people. So this could have been avoided. It wasn't, and even after the catastrophe, people are being told that it's fine when it's very clearly not. So it's it's horrifying, but here we are. I know that this might be surprising to some of you, but yesterday was actually the Super Bowl. I know, right? Anyways, while that was taking place simultaneously, a real-life meetup between actual supervillains was also happening. And... I don't know what they were thinking. Perhaps they believed that they would just blend into the crowd and nobody would notice them. But we saw them. And the individuals I'm, of course, referring to are billionaire owner of Twitter, Elon Musk, and Rupert Murdoch. Now, for those of you who don't know who Rupert Murdoch is, this is the individual who owns Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, and other far-right media outlets around the world responsible for brainwashing millions and millions of people. And I've got to say that the company that Elon Musk keeps is pretty interesting, we'll use that word, considering he fashions himself as some sort of an outsider populist who's also anti-establishment and oftentimes critical of the media apparatus in the United States. And we'll get to his criticism there. But let me just say, the company you keep says a lot about you as an individual. Need I remind you that at the World Cup, 
Elon Musk was seen chumming it up with Jared Kushner and Saudis, who happened to be the second largest investors into Twitter. So for all this talk of Elon Musk being somebody who, you know, is, is with the peasants and the everyday American and the worker, I mean, by now, if you still believe that myth, I've got a bridge to sell you. But this photograph, as it began to circulate, was hilarious because the internet did what it usually does when it comes to Elon Musk, and they roasted the shit out of it. Ellie Mistal wrote, It's a shame that Lex Luthor had to miss the game with his friends. Nikki Ramirez says, Man truly gravitates to the grossest people at the function. David Lazarus writes, Is there like a Justice League for supervillains? Yes, David, you're seeing it now. David Korn of Mother Jones adds, Elon Musk with Rupert Murdoch at the Super Bowl days after Musk tweeted, quote, some of the smartest people I know actively believe the press. Amazing. Musk is really sincere about media accuracy, right? So much so he's partying with the man who heads a media disinformation empire. And in response to that tweet, he retweeted Buck Sexton, who responded to that saying, so many high IQ people recognize the press as their emotional and cultural enforcers, so they become deeply attached to the propaganda machine facts be damned again elon musk retweeted that facts be damned apparently principles be damned because just a day later elon musk would be getting buddy buddy with rupert murdoch one of the most if not the most destructive propagandists in human history his reach is global his disinformation is deadly it actually poses a threat to democracies and Elon Musk is criticizing how inaccurate the media is while summing it up with a media mogul like Rupert Murdoch. It's just, it's, it's very on brand for Elon Musk with his brand being hypocrisy and shallowness and just vapid stupidity overall. Now, I'd be remiss to not point out another story that really speaks to the stupidity of Elon Musk that dropped on, uh, I believe, Friday or Thursday. No, it was Thursday, actually, because we did discuss this on the leftist mafia last week. But Elon Musk is really frustrated with the fact that as the owner of Twitter, his tweets aren't getting more engagement because you think that if you're the god emperor of Twitter, well, everyone's going to see your tweets. But instead, for some reason, we're all seeing Matt Walsh tweets more than usual, which is uh, deeply troubling considering he is a theocratic fascist. But Elon Musk asked an engineer at a meeting last week why nobody's seeing his tweets and it did not go well and it resulted in the engineer being fired. As Platformer reports, for weeks now, Elon Musk has been preoccupied with worries about how many people are seeing his tweets. Last week, the Twitter CEO took his Twitter account private for a day to test whether that might boost the size of his audience. The move came after several prominent right-wing accounts that Musk interacts with complained that recent changes to Twitter had reduced their reach. On Tuesday, Musk gathered a group of engineers and advisors into a room at Twitter's headquarters looking for answers. Why are his engagement numbers tanking? This is ridiculous, he said, according to multiple sources with direct knowledge of the meeting. I have more than 100 million followers, and I'm only getting tens of thousands of impressions. One of the company's two remaining principal engineers offered a possible explanation for Musk's declining reach. Just under a year after the Tesla CEO made a surprise offer to buy Twitter for $44 billion, public interest in his antics is waning. Employees showed Musk internal data regarding engagement with his account, along with the Google Trends chart. Last April, they told him Musk was at peak popularity in search rankings, indicated by a score of 100. Today, he's at a score of 9. Engineers had previously investigated whether Musk's reach had somehow been artificially restricted, but found no evidence that the algorithm was biased against him. Musk did not take the news well. You're fired, you're fired, Musk told the engineer. Maybe Elon Musk has never heard the saying, don't shoot the messenger, but they told him what he didn't want to hear, so he fired them like a petulant child. And imagine being so deluded that you think that the platform you literally own is biased against you. First of all, imagine caring about your reach on Twitter. Who cares? I just don't understand the people who constantly complain about shadow bans and whatnot. Like, I get it if you're a journalist and you use platf the platform to get your message out. But like a lot of these conservatives, all they do is shitpost and they reply to Elon Musk saying, hey, nobody's seeing my shitpost. Like, they don't word it that way, but they pretend as if like they're important like their their sense of self-importance is overly inflated when in actuality you're not very important and people just don't care about what you have to say you're corny nobody wants to see what you have to say so they're not engaging with you 
that's why your reach is lower. But Elon Musk just thinks, well, look, everybody loves me. I have 100 million followers. So, of course, it has to be the platform that I own is biased against me, right? It's just absurd. Now, I have to point out this paragraph because this was just so hilarious. Quote, there's times he's just awake late at night and says all sorts of things that don't make sense, one employee said, and then he'll come to us and be like, this one person says they can't do this one thing on the platform, and then we have to run around chasing some outlier use case for one person. It doesn't make any sense. And this is funny to me because I'm envisioning Elon Musk like at 3 a.m. shitting on the toilet, seeing a reply from Cat Turd saying, hey, it still feels like I'm shadow banned and I'm not getting as much impressions. And then like Elon Musk barking orders at Twitter employees to investigate Cat Turd's claim. And it's funny because even though he does this and he constantly is doing personal errands for right wingers in his replies, they still hate him. They still call him out for being shadow banned. They don't think, well, maybe it's not necessarily the algorithm, not to say that the algorithm itself is not problematic, but they just they have to be perceived as victims. So Elon Musk didn't get the memo there that regardless of how much he tries to boost them and move them up in the algorithm and prioritize their tweets, they have to be perceived as victims because that's part of the conservative ethos. So that will never change. So they're basically incapable of being appeased by Elon Musk, and he doesn't get that, but yet he bends over backwards to wake up his own employees at 3 a.m. or whatever in the middle of the night saying, hey, dickhead241 says that their shadow band still, can you look into this? And he thinks that they're going to see that as a sign of good faith when they don't care, Elon Musk. But like this to me, like I read this article, and after the last year or two, I'm not surprised at all. Elon Musk is a petulant child. And if you are dumb enough to think that your own platform is biased against you, then you really have a few screws loose. You really actually aren't very bright. So either way, um, Elon Musk is basically a real life supervillain. And to see him meet up with Rupert Murdoch, um, I want people to understand that these people are meeting up and they control a large percentage of global information and sure it's funny to dunk on them and compare them to lex luther and whatnot I, I enjoy those tweets but understand that this is nefarious and this should worry people this shouldn't be the case like we shouldn't have just a couple of platforms a couple of moguls control so much information because we don't know what they're saying behind closed doors or out in the open we don't know how they're plotting and scheming or trying to boost conservatives or bust up unions we don't necessarily know what they're saying so it's it's troubling. It's um, it feels gross. You were canceled in 2018. Is that right? I think it was then. Yeah. And yeah, it was. Yeah. You talk about how you're you talk to other comics who have also been canceled. Yeah. And y'all have a pact with each other to say we're going to be even more offensive when we come back. Yeah. Why yeah. is that? What do you, well, because what is your we plan? have to be more offensive when we come back because we can't be beaten down. We can't let them kill comedy. We can't let you know, these people who are censors and book burners have the last say over comedy. We have to protect comedy. It's the last free speech art form. You just heard from canceled comedian Roseanne Barr, and she's remaining defiant. She is refusing to allow the wokists to continue to cancel her and keep her in purgatory. And she's back with a brand new comedy special titled, wait for it, cancel this. I just love it so much. Very original, very very creative. I'm really happy to see her back. Good on you, Roseanne Barr. Now, um, like many canceled comedians, she's kind of forced to carve out this lane where she presents herself as the main antagonist towards woke culture. But if you'll remember, she wasn't actually canceled by the leftist mob. She was canceled by executives who chose to cancel the reboot of her television show, Roseanne, after she made a racist tweet about a former Obama administration official, Valerie Jarrett. Now, if you'll remember, she ended up blaming that racist tweet on Ambien, and it led to what I think is literally the funniest thing that Roseanne Barr has ever said. But I don't know if she was actually trying to be funny here, but either way, this was the explanation, another explanation as to why she uh, made that tweet. I thought the bitch was white! God damn it! I thought the bitch was white! <laughs> Still a banger in 2023. Now, she's done being canceled. So she has a brand new comedy special, as I mentioned, and it's being published by um, Fox Nation. 
not Comedy Central, not Netflix, but Fox Nation, because they're publishing comedy specials of canceled comedians now. Now, in her special, predictably, she goes after cancel culture. But like many anti-woke comedians, that really just means that she's going after trans people. Because, you know, if you're this canceled comedian and you're taking on the woke industrial complex, you go after the individuals with real power when you're speaking truth to power and you attack trans people because that's the way you can, uh, I guess, stick it to the woke people. The problem is that there's not a lot of creativity in the realm of anti-trans jokes on the right. And the left has made fun of the right for having just one joke when it comes to trans people. And that has historically been the uh, Apache attack helicopter joke, right? They say, well, if you can identify as a woman, can I identify as an Apache attack helicopter? And then there were various uh, or variations, I should say, of that. But now there's a new one joke that conservatives have. And Roseanne Barr is, of course, going to trot that out. The pronouns joke. The problem is that it sounds eerily familiar and it's because, mm, she took it from someone, a fellow comedian. But before I tell you who, let's watch her stand-up special because this is a, a glorious clip here shared by Benny Johnson on Twitter. No concept of reality. They've been living in a bubble forever. Asking questions have nothing to do with the real world. What is my gender, mom? What is my gender? Your gender is get a job. That's your gender. <laughs> What are they thinking? Ask, what is a woman? They don't know that. That one they're asking all the time. What is a woman? I'll tell you what a woman is. A woman is me. That's what a woman is, okay? A woman is someone who cleans up everybody else's shit. That's what a woman is. A woman is somebody whose boobs hang down to her knees with a prolapsed uterus from giving birth to five ungrateful little privileged <laughs> never had to work for anything in their whole damn life. <laughs> my pronouns are kiss my <laughs> I've got to admit that that clip actually did make me laugh, but not because her jokes were funny. It's funny to think that she thinks that those jokes are funny, and that thought made me laugh. I just, do they really believe that they're being subversive and edgy with these jokes? Every single anti-woke comedian trots out the same jokes, and they think that they're like, brave? I just, I, I don't get it. So let's get to some of these specifics here. So. I love how she combined transphobia with conservative economic politics, saying, get a job, that's your gender. But um, that one was just a banger. Probably took her days to come up with it. Um, and probably my favorite part, besides the last joke, which we'll get to, which she plagiarized, by the way, was, uh, what is a woman? They don't know that. That one they're asking all the time, what is a woman? As if we're, we're so stupid because we don't know what a woman is when, honey, you're the ones who are asking that question. You're citing the name of a documentary by prolific transphobe Matt Walsh titled What is a Woman? So conservatives unironically ask what's a woman, and she claims that the left is asking what is a woman. I don't think that it's trans people and their allies who are confused about what a woman is or isn't. I think that your side is the one uh, that's confused here. And she also says a woman is someone who cleans up everybody else's shit. Okay, well, by that definition, I could be a woman. Like, we're actually expanding the definition of what is a woman here if we're going by your characterization. So this is actually technically a woke comedy. Now, the best part, of course, was uh, my pronouns are kiss my ass. So that's the new one joke that conservatives have and variations of it. My pronouns are, <laughs> I don't like woke. My pronouns are, um these nuts i'm sure a comedian's gonna come up with that at some point if they haven't already but the reason why that stood out to me is because as twitter user chests pointed out it sounds very familiar because it was used recently on multiple occasions by another comedian ted cruz let's watch well my name is ted cruz and my pronouns are kiss my ass well i'm ted cruz and my pronoun is kiss my ass me i'm ted cruz me aren't i so likable me 
So let's just pause for a moment and reflect on the circumstances here. Canceled comedian Roseanne Barr makes a triumphant return, defiant, refuses to back down, and in her very first comedy special, she plagiarizes Ted Cruz. Thus leading again, potentially, to another cancellation, because I don't know if you all remember this, but Carlos Mencia is a comedian who was canceled by Joe Rogan, of all people, because he plagiarized the joke from Bill Cosby. So maybe she's taking on the wokists and she doesn't want them to cancel her, but is anyone going to call her out for just blatantly plagiarizing Ted Cruz, Joe Rogan? Now, look, to be fair to Roseanne, I don't think that she actually stole that joke from Ted Cruz. I think that the problem is that there's a fundamental lack of originality for right-wing comedians and they end up inadvertently plagiarizing each other because they have the same talking points and the same jokes because their transphobia is corny and old and they don't know what else to say so they resort to the same oh well if you identify as blank can i identify as blank or oh your pronouns are this my pronouns are that and so when you end up saying that odds are you're going to end up repeating what somebody else has already said Hence the problem with no originality now. But either way, she should have at least maybe done a little bit of research because, yeah, you use the joke that was already cited multiple times by Ted Cruz. He has a copyright, not literally, but a copyright on my pronouns are kiss my ass. So Roseanne Barr could have said, you know, um, something else. She could have been the one to coin the my pronouns are D's nuts thing. But instead, she chose to go with kiss my ass, which was already taken. But... The question of plagiarizing, it still hangs high. And, you know, if she isn't going to be canceled for going after the woke crowd, then maybe comedians might want to cancel her for going after other comedians' jokes. So the reason I'm making this video right now is because it is almost 1 a.m. and I am currently directly across the street from where the shootings at Michigan State occurred. I am 21 years old, and this is the second mass shooting that I have now lived through. 10 years and two months ago, I survived the Sandy Hook shooting. And when I was crouched in the corner in school in Newtown, Connecticut on 12, 14, 12, I was hunched in the corner with my classmates for so long that I actually got a PTSD fracture in my L4 and L5 in my right lower back. I now have a full-blown PTSD fracture that flares up anytime I am in a stressful situation or anything occurs that's aggressive like that. The fact that this is the second mass shooting that I have now lived through is incomprehensible. My heart goes out to all the families and the friends of the victims of this Michigan State shooting, but we can no longer just provide love and prayers. It needs to be legislation, it needs to be action. It's not okay. We can no longer allow this to happen. We can no longer be complacent. I'll forever be Sandy Hook strong and forever be Spartan strong. That TikTok is going viral because as she eloquently explained, the MSU shooting that took place last night where three people were killed and five more were injured isn't her first mass shooting. She survived Sandy Hook as well. Now, what's astonishing is that this isn't the only MSU student to see a second mass shooting. One MSU student, Emma Riddle, tweeted, 14 months ago, I had to evacuate from Oxford High School when a 15-year-old opened fire and killed four of my classmates and injured seven more. Tonight, I am sitting under my desk at Michigan State University once again, texting everyone I love you. When will this end? Now, that's not all because the auntie of two MSU students tweeted this, active shooter on MSU campus reported 23 minutes ago, still roaming next door to my nephew's dorm. He has taken cover. I'm waiting to hear. The same nephew that was in the classroom next door to the active shooter at Oxford High School November of 2021. Now, there's even more. As Insider reports, Jennifer Mancini, the mother of one MSU freshman, told the Detroit Free Press that she had just spent a year helping her daughter deal with losing two of her closest friends in the Oxford shooting where she was a senior. She said that she had PTSD, Mancini said, of her daughter, the Detroit Free Press reported. She said she can't believe this is happening again so think about how insane that is for multiple msu students this is not the first mass shooting that they've lived through that's where we're at in the united states but it's not just students at msu 
who happen to live through multiple mass shootings, other individuals around the country have also experienced this. For example, three friends who survived the Las Vegas shooting in 2017, where 60 people were killed at a country music festival, ended up surviving another mass shooting just two years later in 2019 at the Gilroy Garlic Festival, where three people were killed by a mass shooter. Also, veteran Brian Kelly survived two mass shootings within the span of one year, the Las Vegas shooting and then the shooting in Thousand Oaks, California at Borderline Bar and Grill, where a gunman killed 11 people in 2018. Now, another man actually experienced the same two mass shootings but wasn't as lucky as the last individual he survived the las vegas shooting but died in the shooting at borderline bar and grill the point is mass shootings in the united states are so common that people are living through multiple mass shootings that's where we're at now, let's get to some details about the MSU shooting. As the New York Times reports, the gunman first opened fire at Berkeley Hall, home to the university's College of Social Science, shortly before 8.30 p.m., killing two people. Chris Rosman, the interim deputy university police chief, said at a news conference on Tuesday morning. The gunman later moved to the Michigan State Student Union, a popular place for students to eat and study, where he killed a third person. The two buildings just minutes apart on Grand River Avenue were both unlocked and open to the public. Not long after the shooting began, the university sent an email alerting students, many of whom were in dormitories, libraries, and other campus buildings, to shelter in place or evacuate safely while the authorities searched for the shooter. After a three-hour manhunt, the university police said the gunman was found off campus around 11.30 p.m. and had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Shelter-in-place orders were lifted and students quickly returned to their homes or were reunited with their families. Now, at the time that I record this, not much is known about the shooter or his motives, but he was reportedly a 43-year-old loner, and he does have ties to the community, but that's really all that we know at this point in time. And now, this is the part of the video where I, as a political commentator, am supposed to come up with solutions, but I'm not going to do that. We already know solutions. I'm not going to entertain the arguments from bad faith actors about, oh my God, why did this happen? Maybe it's mental health. Maybe it's violent video games. Maybe it's a lack of prayer in schools. Maybe it's a lack of security. We know why this keeps happening. It's because guns. We have more guns than people. And until Congress actually takes meaningful action to reduce the number of guns, then this will keep happening. Period. End of story. And we don't even have to come up with some original solution. We can just copy Australia's homework because after a mass shooting in, I believe, 1996, they did gun reform and they haven't had a mass shooting since. So this isn't something that we need to keep pretending to feign ignorance over or trying to have this conversation that isn't happening in good faith with the other side. We know why it's happening and we know the solutions. It's a matter of whether or not we have the political will to implement the solutions. And obviously, we don't. So this will keep happening and more and more people will experience multiple mass shootings so long as this continues to occur in this disgustingly violent country. So we're just a couple of months into Trump's 2024 presidential campaign, and it doesn't really seem like he's thinking of ways to help the American people in the event he's able to win a second term. Instead, he is cooking up new and creative ways to kill American citizens if he's elected again. Literally. So this isn't the first report that we've gotten about his authoritarian plans for a second term, but basically he wants to expand the death penalty, bring back arguably more barbaric ways to kill Americans, and on top of that, possibly make public executions a thing comparable to Saudi Arabia, perhaps? It's deeply chilling, but I mean, it's not surprising because this is Donald Trump who we're talking about. So the story comes from Rolling Stone magazine, who spoke with three sources close to Trump on the condition of anonymity, and here's what they say. Quote, the former president, if reelected, is still committed to expanding the use of the federal death penalty and bringing back banned methods of execution, the sources say. He has even, one of the sources recounts, mused about television footage of executions, including showing condemned prisoners in the final moments of their lives. 
Specifically, Trump has talked about bringing back death by firing squad, by hanging, and according to two of the sources, possibly even by guillotine. He has also, sources say, discussed group executions. Trump has floated these ideas while discussing planned campaign rhetoric and policy desires, as well as his disdain for President Biden's approach to crime. In at least one instance late last year, according to the third source, who has direct knowledge of the matter, Trump privately mused about the possibility of creating a flashy government-backed video ad campaign that would accompany a federal revival of these execution methods. In Trump's vision, these videos would include footage from these new executions, if not from the exact moments of death. The former president believes this would help put the fear of God into violent criminals, this source says. He wanted to do some of these things when he was in office, but for whatever reasons, didn't have the chance. Hmm. Interesting. So, based on that, it seems logical to deduce that he's very heavily leaning towards public executions as a form of deterrent. In the same way that Saudi Arabia, for example, uses public executions to deter against political opponents doing disloyal things, as one Saudi exile says the regime does. Now, what I find hilarious about this story is that He's denying this. His campaign is calling this fake news when his Justice Department quite literally moved to expand execution methods for federal inmates on death row. So after his administration tried to expand the methods within which the state kills federal inmates and also expedited their deaths, by the way, he's saying, no, we wouldn't want to do this. But your administration tried to bring back firing squads. So why should we not believe that you would do that again? And it's not just firing squad, to be clear, it's also guillotines and hanging and group executions and doing it in a very public way, which makes it really deranged. Now, to be fair to Donald Trump, lethal injections is arguably more cruel and inhumane than death by firing squad. The authors explain Trump's firing squad fixation may address his desire for the dramatic, but some experts believe that an instant death by gunshot may be more humane than a lethal injection. There's pain, certainly, but it's transient, according to Dr. Jonathan Groner, a professor of surgery at The Ohio State University's College of Medicine. Quote, if you're shot in the chest and your heart stops functioning, it's just seconds until you lose consciousness. So even though death by lethal injection looks more humane and it makes us feel more civilized, it still causes suffering and oftentimes it's botched and causes the inmates to die in a very painful way. But ultimately, we shouldn't be trying to come up with more humane ways to kill citizens. We should just not allow the state to kill citizens because if murdering citizens as a form of punishment isn't a violation of the eighth amendment's cruel and unusual punishment clause then nothing is so killing citizens should not be an authority that the state has and on top of that a reason to not kill citizens is because oftentimes we get it wrong as science magazine explains 4.1 percent or 1 in 25 death row inmates have been mistakenly convicted and this is based on three decades worth of data so when we get it wrong that much when our track record is that bad the state should not have the authority to kill people and furthermore this idea that using the death penalty as a deterrent is nonsense because it's not that is demonstrably not the case and i understand the emotional arguments that people make in favor of the death penalty right yes this one criminal he murdered a bunch of people did terrible things therefore it's justified for him so it should be an option but even though i understand and sympathize with that argument which is an emotional argument but it is an argument nonetheless the problem with that is that justification those exceptions that we make are often used as a pretext to expand the state's ability to kill citizens and that ends up harming people in the future so take this example uh with Ron DeSantis, where he was asked about the parkland shooting and here's what he said about protecting people in the future, specifically referencing the Parkland shooter and what he wants to do about capital punishment. We're gonna reform the capital uh, sentencing procedure in Florida. Of course, to get convicted of a crime, you need a unanimous jury. But Nicholas Cruz was somebody everyone knew was guilty and he's entitled to process, but this was not anything that, he, he admitted it, right? So then they go for the penalty phase 
and you kill 17 people, how, what other penalty can you get other than the ultimate penalty? And yet you have one holdout that can nullify that. So DeSantis, Trump's main opponent, wants to expand the death penalty. He just said that. Now, he may have said it in a more eloquent way, and he used a more reasonable justification to do that. He doesn't want to expand the death penalty just for the sake of being cruel and seeking retribution. He wants to do that because in this instance with Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland shooter, it's obvious he murdered 17 people. We know he's guilty. Just put him to death. Like, what, why are we even considering this? And I think that that argument, it makes sense on a visceral level. The problem is that this short-term justification will lead to long-term harm because people will inevitably be harmed by this change that we're making specifically to punish Nicholas Cruz. Somebody who's innocent will be killed potentially because of this change that we're making. So you have to ask yourself, what is the goal of our justice system? And if the goal is simply retribution, then that is going to lead to suboptimal outcomes as we've seen. We need to reimagine the ways in which we think about crime and punishment because if you want to stop mass shootings in the first place being more harsher and punitive towards the shooters isn't going to stop the shootings but gun reform will stopping drug dealers from dealing drugs by killing them like trump wants to do isn't going to lead to the end of drug trafficking drug reform will so we have to think about ways that we're trying to prevent crime and if it's within the context exclusively of being more harsher towards criminals that's where we're wrong and that's where the state should not have the authority to kill citizens because again oftentimes it leads to more people getting harmed than we'd like to admit as a society but either way what trump wants to do is deeply horrifying and this is why we just can't allow him to get a second term because we already saw how authoritarian he was in his first term. But now when he's like broadcasting what he wants to do and he's saying, I want to basically do public executions by guillotine or hanging or firing squad, that's where we've got to kind of wake up as a country and ask ourselves, how is this man viable politically in 2023? Even though, yes, the GOP base is insane and a majority of them support Christian nationalism, according to one poll, still, I feel like this is a failure on all of us. Like, this is a societal failure that we're witnessing that this man is still viable despite all of the terrible things that he says and does and wants to do. So either way, that's Trump's plans. The best you can do is educate yourself and fight against him with everything that you've got. So back in December of 2021, the very first Starbucks store in the company's history voted to form a union in Buffalo, New York. And as of today, 366 stores have voted to form unions, which is a rate of progression that is genuinely astounding. And it's even more impressive considering the ways in which the company has gone above and beyond to break up these unions, including the CEO himself going out of his way to denounce unions and scold workers for daring to even consider forming a union. As Julia Connolly of Common Dreams explains, Howard Schultz has played a central role in attempting to quash unionization efforts at the company's stores across the country. After workers in Buffalo launched efforts to form a bargaining unit in 2021, the Starbucks co-founder flew into the city to hold an anti-union meeting with employees just before they were set to vote on the issue. The CEO, who was scheduled to leave the company in April, has been personally named in some of the 75 complaints against Starbucks filed by the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel, accusing the company of illegal union-busting tactics such as intimidation and retaliation. And we've talked about the myriad ways in which that Starbucks has tried to bust up these unions. That includes cutting benefits, cutting hours so employees no longer qualify for benefits on top of that, um, firing employees, intimidating employees, offering exclusive new benefits packages to non-union employees, closing stores down. I mean, they've gone above and beyond and they've been so shameless that the National Labor Relations Board quite literally demanded Howard Schultz, the CEO, to issue an apology to workers and explain to them what their legal rights are as employees. But what does Howard Schultz say about this unionization effort in his company? Well, he is dismissing it and essentially uh, claiming it's not because of the bad working conditions and low pay and bad benefits. It's because these employees, you know, they're just angry at the world. 
That's literally what he said. Quote, sometimes Schultz struggled to understand why his unionizing workers were so angry. Quote, they're angry at the world. They're angry at their situation, which I understand, Schultz said in an interview. Imagine being that stupid and having that much power. You don't know why your employees are unionizing, but yet you understand that they're angry, angry at the world and angry at the situation. Maybe if you put two and two together, you'd see that the situation has been created for them because of late stage capitalism and greedy employers like you who exploit them. You become extremely rich, purchase mansions and yachts while they can't even afford rent, while they struggle to get by. And you just can't understand why they're fed up and they're unionizing. Howard Schultz is genuinely a dipshit. And we already knew this, right? When he was flirting with the presidential run back in 2019, 2018, after, you know, um, thinking that Bernie Sanders would be the front runner, I think he made it very clear that he's out of touch and he's just stupid. Like, I, I don't like to go out of my way to lob these ad hominem attacks at individuals, but I think he's actually stupid. So he's sitting here with his employees who he knows are angry and he just can't figure out why they're unionizing. He just talks at them and scolds them, but he doesn't actually listen. Now, on top of that, he's refusing to be held accountable for his union busting tactics. HuffPost reports Bernie Sanders, who chairs the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor and Pensions, had sent a letter to the coffee chain on February 7th, asking that Schultz appear on Capitol Hill next month. But in a response Tuesday night, Starbucks offered instead to send another executive, A.J. Jones, the second a vice president and top spokesperson. What a weasley little coward. You see, he likes to talk tough and puff out his chest when he's talking down to his employees who he loves to exploit. But when it comes to answering questions before a senator, sorry, I'm going to send in a surrogate instead who has all of these corporate talking points memorized. Despicable, just genuinely despicable. Now, Bernie Sanders responded to his refusal to show up and just to be clear before we get to bernie's response here he wasn't subpoenaed so he's not breaking the law by not showing up but when a senate committee invites you to testify you should probably testify before them but bernie sanders is tacitly threatening to subpoena him since he didn't show up here's what bernie sanders said via twitter it is disappointing but not surprising that howard schultz the ceo and director of starbucks has declined an invitation from a majority of members on the health committee to testify at a u.s senate hearing to answer why the national labor relations board has lodged over 75 complaints against starbucks for violating federal labor laws apparently it is easier for mr schultz to fire workers who are ex exercising their constitutional right to form unions and to intimidate others who may be interested in joining a union than to answer questions from elected officials. If Mr. Schultz believes that a multi-billion dollar corporation like Starbucks can break federal labor law with impunity, he is mistaken. As the chairman of the Senate Health Committee, I intend to hold Mr. Schultz and Starbucks accountable for their unacceptable behavior and look forward to seeing him before our committee. And there it is right there. We will see you before our committee. We invited you as a courtesy to be polite, but since you rejected our invitation, well, maybe we uh, subpoena you and force you to testify here so you personally can explain why you're breaking federal labor laws. So I love this story. I love that Bernie Sanders is holding his feet to the fire. Every single large multi-billion dollar company who does this they should be held accountable. And Starbucks, it's not like they're an exception to the rule, right? This is common. But they've been so shameless in their union busting that I think that it would be hoove senators like Bernie Sanders who are pro-union to make an example out of him in particular because you can't get away with this. If you can get away with this, then what's the point of these federal laws? So kudos to Bernie Sanders for uh, calling him out and shaming him. But next, we need to see the subpoena because... This can't stand. He needs to answer for his law breaking. If you or I broke the law as shamelessly as these CEOs, we would go to jail. But because it's a multimillionaire, potentially a billionaire, I don't know how much he's worth. It's fine. He'll just send in a surrogate. Not acceptable. Subpoena him and uh, bring down the hammer, Bernie. Let's take some time to talk about the Republican Party in Wyoming. So this party claims to care a lot about parental rights, but at the same time, they're 
doing things that fundamentally undermine parents' ability to make decisions about their own children. For example, they have advanced a bill that bans gender-affirming care for anyone under the age of 18 and classifies that as felony child abuse. Additionally, they passed a bill that would establish a commission that has the authority to ask trans people very personal questions about their body and body parts. And the goal of this commission is to limit their ability to play sports. So these are steps that they're taking to protect children. At least that's the pretense that they're using to pass these laws, or at least advance these laws at the time that I record this video. You see, you can protect young girls in sports by banning their trans peers from playing. You can protect children by restricting the ability of parents to make decisions that the experts deem as medically necessary for their trans children. So they claim to care a lot about protecting children. That's the point. But turns out mm, something happened that proves that they don't actually care about protecting children. As LGBTQ Nation explains, Wyoming's HB7 seeks to ban marriages involving anyone under the age of 16 and would allow 16 and 17 year olds to marry with parental consent. Current Wyoming law has no minimum age requirement for marriage. For those under 16, parents must receive a judge's consent. The bill would take away a judge's ability to do so and simply make it illegal for those under 16 to marry. Opponents of child marriage say that it places children at the risk of being victims of violence and robs them of their childhood. They have criticized the Wyoming bill because most child marriages involve girls who are 16 or 17, but some conservatives are opposing the bill for the opposite reason. They believe younger children should be able to get married. A mass email sent Thursday from the Wyoming Republican Party reportedly advocated constituents email their lawmakers to encourage them to not support the bill due to concerns about constitutional rights. The email linked to an analysis of the bill by Capital Watch for Wyoming Families, which argued that since children under 16 can get pregnant, they should be able to get married so their kids can grow up in a stable home. It claimed the bill denies the fundamental purpose of marriage by denying a child's father and mother from living under the same roof. Capital Watch also claimed the bill is in violation of parental rights and that this arbitrary age is demonstrably high than the historical norm of millennia of human existence. So these are the folks who claim to care about parental rights, who care about protecting children. These are the same folks who are calling LGBTQ plus people groomers. And here they are, passionately defending child marriage, rallying their constituents to lobby against this, call their lawmakers and say, we don't support this ban on child marriage. We want child marriage. And understand that this bill is basically a compromise. Imagine trying to compromise on the issue of child marriage. It doesn't ban marriages for anyone under 18, just 16 and under. But they're not happy with that. Now, some additional facts about this bill. It was actually proposed by a gay Republican lawmaker. So he's very clearly trying to do some PR damage control for his party. On top of that, it did pass out of the House by a vote of 36 to 25, which is controlled by Republicans. So there is a little bit of momentum for this piece of legislation. But if you think it's going to pass, that's still up in the air, because according to Newsweek, efforts to raise the age of marriage in the state have consistently stalled. For years, now retired Laramie Democratic Representative Charles Pelkey sponsored legislation to raise the age of marriage to 18, only to fail with every effort. Now, additionally, Wyoming is one of just eight states in the country, including California, Michigan, Mississippi, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Washington, and West Virginia, without a minimum age requirement for marriage, and it currently ranks among the top 10 states in the country for child marriages, according to a 2021 study by advocacy group Unchained at Last. Now, the aforementioned advocacy group that was quoted there, Unchained at Last, they say that 97% of child marriages include girls between the ages of 16 and 17. And all that this law does is say that you can't marry younger than that. So the bill is essentially window dressing you're still allowing 16 and 17 year old minors to get married and Republicans are still very much against it. Why? Well, I mean, maybe it's the principle. They just believe that children should be allowed to get married. And as they make the case, they argue that, well, since you can get pregnant at a younger age, then you should also be able to get married as well. Because of course, they also don't allow minors to get abortions because that's bad according to them as well. 
So they want to force these young girls who are children in some instances to have these babies and allow them to get married. But yet they claim, you know what? If you're under 18, that's too young for gender affirming care, even if your parents think it's appropriate and your doctor, more importantly, says that it's medically necessary to reduce depression and suicidality. They're the experts, not the doctors, but they care about protecting children. I love this story so much because it exposes how perverted and disgusting these Republicans are. This was never about children. Everybody knew that that argument was nothing more than a Trojan horse to get people to buy into broader anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ plus arguments. But right here, they're showing their cards. And this isn't the first state to uh, try to not only protect child marriages, but go in the opposite direction. Tennessee, for example, we talked about this last year. So I think that child marriages is something that anyone who wants to protect children would be in favor of banning, but not these Republicans. Hmm. I wonder why. Maybe when they call it other people groomers, maybe it's just me, but maybe we should consider that more of a confession than an accusation. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.